The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Support for this podcast is provided by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Bayer, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck Co. Incorporated, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode of our educational podcast series, and this specific episode is titled The Financial Toxicity as Drugs Move Earlier into the Treatment Paradigm and How This Relates to Disparities in Treatment Patterns. Uh, My guest today is uh, Dr. Sarah Sutka, who is uh, Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Washington uh, School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Sutka is a urologic oncologist. She's associate professor in the Department of Urology, as I mentioned, and her practice really spans the full spectrum of urologic oncology, including bladder, kidney, testis, and prostate cancer. Um, She's a bit of an underachiever. Uh, Prior to getting to the University of Washington, she uh, did her medical degree at Harvard, as well as her residency at the Mass General Hospital and was uh, a fellow in the urologic oncology program at Mayo Clinic. Uh, Thereafter was on staff in Chicago for a few years and now has been at uh, Washington for how long, Sarah? Remind me, I I didn't have that part in front of me. Coming up on four years. Coming up on four years. And uh, she's also a associate editor, if I remember correctly, for European urology. So first and foremost, Sarah, thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for taking an hour out of your time on vacation, and more than more importantly, to, to spend some time with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jay. I'm delighted to be here. This is an, a topic that is incredibly important and um, obviously is, is near and dear to my heart. So I'm glad that we kind of have a chance to chat about it. And like I said, I just hope you can hear me here from uh, from northern Canada. <laughs> No, no, it's uh, it's great. I, I'm actually I, I'm jealous that you're in northern Canada, and, and right now I'm in my office in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So <laughs> one of us is doing this right right now. Um, so I, I mean, Sarah, let's just maybe start off and um, just talk a little bit about this concept of, um, you know, what is financial toxicity? What is it? What, what is there a definition for it? What should what does it mean to you? What should it mean to us as practitioners? Maybe let's start with that and, and then go from there. Well, I think that this is a term that probably was very much under-recognized um, and has kind of come more into our, our lexicon over the past couple of years, especially in the oncology world. Although this really is important for any practitioner, no matter what your field is. So financial toxicity is is considered one of the key components that that inform quality of life, um, along with our sort of the patient's physical physical experiences, psychological experience, and social life. Um, it's it's a key informant, and it's a term that was originally coined by researchers from Duke um, that basically identified the fact that out of pocket expenses that are related to a patient's treatment for their medical conditions 
are similar to or can have as impactful um, uh, or a sort of a meaning for patients as physical toxicity because of the fact that costs can so significantly decrease quality of life. And so this is this, this new term that was coined that really kind of um, can sort of communicates the degree to which the, the amount of money that patients have to pay out of their own pockets to, to achieve healthcare, to get healthcare, um, how, that, how that impacts their quality of life. And, and so maybe dovetailing on that, uh, give our listeners a little bit of a sense of, you know, how much of this is a problem? And maybe pick the U.S. or, or maybe worldwide, but maybe let's just pick the U.S. Um, what's the scope of the problem that we're looking at here? Well, especially among patients with cancer, financial toxicity is incredibly common. So if we, if we look actually just at general medical costs, um, nearly 60% of Americans are pursued by a debt collector because of past due medical bills. That's, that's almost two thirds of the population. Um, up to 16% of Americans' credit report reports include medical debt, and um, nearly a third of all American families report struggling to pay medical debt, uh, uh, medical bills, or to, or to actually default on their payments, which of course is an incredible uh, source of stress, just that kind of financial hardship. It is one of the most common hardships that is reported by cancer survivors across the country. And it's, uh, as I mentioned, it's it's especially common in patients with cancer, but it's it's if we stratify by age, that that sort of the magnitude of the problem, um, interestingly, decreases with age, and that's largely because of mm -hmm. the fact that patients over 65 in, in the United States have, um, uh, oftentimes, will have Medicare and Medicaid coverage, while while patients under the age of 65 are largely reliant on private coverage. So, if we look at say the um, patient or patients reporting problems paying just their medical bills in the prior year. If patients are uninsured, almost 40% of patients have a hard time paying their medical bills in the United States mm -hmm. under the age of 65. That number goes down to somewhere between 6 to 15% over 65. So it's it's a major, major issue. And when we look at what are we talking about, you know, how much money are, are cancer patients paying out of pocket? The total direct out of cost, out of pocket costs for patients with insurance can be up to say five hundred dollars monthly, mm. but it can. But if we look at the ninetieth percentile, say over a year, if somebody has no insurance, the ninetieth percentile for out of pocket cancer care costs can be up to eighteen thousand mm. dollars. And those and those are two thousand and thirteen numbers. So we're probably talking a lot more in twenty twenty two numbers. So it's a, it's a major problem. It affects everyone, even patients who have excellent insurance. Um, and so it's a problem that as practitioners, we really need to be familiar with and something that we need to engage with our patients on because it's a stress they're feeling and it's going to directly impact not only their ability to receive care, but also their, their quality of life, which obviously is, is critically important for us. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit later on about what we can do from our point of view as practitioners, but but it is interesting that when we see a lot of patients in the office, right? You you have 15 minutes for a follow up visit, and many of us, I think, you know, you dive bomb right down onto, you know, the image, the scan, the PSA test, or whatever blood test, and you know that as you sort of contextualized it from what you just mentioned, it's like one small piece of the puzzle, right? That 15 minutes of that scan they had that day 
um, is such a small piece, especially if that scan is now going to uh, result in more treatment, more therapy. Um, and, and I do think it, it's, it's something that I think most people, including myself, don't appreciate because you're just trying to get through, you're trying to get through the clinic day, right? You're just yeah. trying to see everybody, dot all the I's, cross the T's, make sure you order the right scans, make sure you follow up. But there's such significant ramifications once the patient walks out of that office that, that frankly, as you've alluded to quite well, really impacts, um, you know, their, their financial well-being as, probably, as well as probably their psychological well-being. Absolutely. And whether or not they're actually going to get that scan. Right. Because yeah. and we're going to we'll talk a little bit about that because we know from some survey data that patients patients are very aware of costs. Um, and there there are some scary statistics about patients, the proportion of patients who become bankrupt because of their their medical costs and also lose their homes. I've certainly had patients who have had to sell their homes in order to pay for their their health care. So I think it's actually it, I, I, we're, oh, again, as you mentioned, well, we're going to spend actually a fair amount of time towards the end of our conversation talking about strategies. But I think that it's a conversation that I actually open the door to in a first visit where I'm discussing a new diagnosis. Hmm. Because I think that it's something that a lot of patients don't feel is really like the role of their, it's not really the role of their doctor to talk to them about it. But actually, because our job is to partner with patients to help them achieve the best possible outcomes. It's actually critically important that we have open conversation about finances and how finances impact treatment in order to ensure that we're choosing treatments that are going to be most likely to be obtained by patients. And we're mm -hmm. choosing a testing strategy that makes sense. We're, we're choosing a, a treatment strategy that's going to be successful. If they can't pay for the treatments, can't get to the treatments, then there's no point for us sort of recommending those treatments. And this is something I, I became acutely aware of when I, in my, my first job, when I was working at Cook County Hospital, which was a, a safety net hospital. And now I, I run a cancer clinic at Harborview, which is also our, in Washington, at University of Washington, kind of our, our, our safety net hospital and our county hospital. You know, the, you may, the guidelines may say that this is the next step in terms of treatment. It may be triplet therapy. It may be, you know, not only... Lupron plus, but then chemotherapy. But if that's not even close to being feasible for a patient, then we have to get creative and we have to say, okay, well, if I can't do that, what what can we do? What can we what can we get coverage for? How can we how can we navigate this to help you be as successful as possible in obtaining that therapy that you need? So, you talked a little bit about how. Um, when you look at sort of contributors to financial toxicity, some of that may relate to patient age and therefore whether there might be, for example, a Medicare beneficiary. What, what are some of the, the, the factors that we should be cognizant of that may be contributing to our patients and the financial toxicity that may they may face besides maybe just sort of certain types of government insurance? Sure. So patients age and obviously what insurance they are, they have available to them is going to be critical. And I think that, um, you know, whether a patient is employed or not, whether they have employee employment based insurance, whether they're self employed and they're seeking and paying for their own insurance, the level of insurance that they have, the, the sort of the copay strategies that are, are um, uh, organized. And I think that this is actually something that's really important is a lot of people don't actually understand their health insurance. So having some uh, familiarity as physicians with talking to patients about what kind of health insurance they might have is actually 
very important. And uh, again, I mentioned I'm up in Canada. I actually have had to learn a lot about the American healthcare system in order to help my patients navigate, you know, sometimes thinking about changing the insurance plans they have so that we can be more successful in, in helping them not have to pay as much out of pocket. But there's a lot of other factors that, that impact beyond insurance, as you mentioned. So um, the other things obviously are, is their employment and, and whether or not they can continue their employment. So if their health insurance is contingent upon them working and the treatment or the disease process that we are managing precludes them from being able to work. That's a major issue. Um, obviously, life changes in terms of whether or not insurance is obtained through one's partner um, or if for younger patients, they're on, you know, up to the age of 26, they're covered under their parents' insurance. Those are all important to whether or not there's housing con concerns here. Obviously, that impacts financial toxicity. So, you know, financial stability obviously is is informed by all of the, the, the sort of the, the money out, money in calculus that that we're all navigating on a day-to-day -day basis, our ability to save for the future, save for retirement. And then of course, I think there's been this incredible stress that has been added in the past three years with the COVID pandemic, which has vastly changed employment situations for a lot of our patients, whether or not patients are able to work from home, work from uh, outside, working working directly in person the way they used to. Um, obviously, I think industries such as the hospitality industry have been decimated. Um, and then there's been the whole factor that many of us have had to navigate childcare while trying to work. And for, for many folks, that meant a decision about actually le leaving a job in order to continue either, whether it's childcare or older um, a family member care or whatever else. So lots and lots of things uh, sort of come into this calculus. Um, and all of these contributors can increase or decrease financial toxicity. And even when patients sort of have periods of financial stability, uh, critical diagnosis can, can vastly sort of send things off kilter. So what about you know, we've been talking a lot about financial toxicity and you, we've sort of alluded to, and you sort of alluded to it very nicely that you, you can't look at sort of financial toxicity in a vacuum, that there, there, there's inevitably going to be an impact on the patient through a variety of different, you know, avenues. Maybe just walk us through, you know, what should we be thinking about with regards to the impact on financial toxicity related to other elements that we may the patients may experience that we may experience with them. Well, I think this is something that actually really hasn't been recognized until recently, but financial toxicity has substantial impacts for patients across the spectrum of kind of their experience of healthcare. And like I said, this is a key determinant in with respect to quality of life. So yes, financial toxicity has major impacts and, and sort of downstream sequela of financial toxicity include things like financial strain and bankruptcy. Okay, those are obviously economic impacts. But importantly, there's been increasing data that has demonstrated that patients who suffer from financial toxicity who are incredibly concerned about the, who have high out-of-pocket costs, they actually manifest psychologic symptoms, increased physical symptoms, distress, so that the sorts of things that we ask patients about in terms of their experience of their, their treatment, their, their treatments and their, and their diagnoses, they are more likely to us to report physical symptoms, patients, who, patients with a high degree of uh, financial toxicity. They're significantly more likely to report high levels of anxiety and distress, low quality of life, and importantly, for probably a number of reasons, 
survival has actually been demonstrated to be lower in patients with cancer who have high, a high burden of financial toxicity. So really substantial um, uh, sort of global manifestations of this one key determinant of quality of life are, are noted. So the, the related part will be, uh, okay, so how, you know, how do patients cope with this? And um, yeah. so you've highlighted, you know, very nicely that you, you can't just talk about financial toxicity in this vacuum. There's obviously wide ranging implications for the patients. Maybe give us a sense of how do patients cope? Um, how do they manage? Uh, and it's a big question. So maybe yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm oversimplifying this, but, but maybe give us a, an idea of that. Well, there have actually been a couple of nice survey studies that have given us some insight into how patients navigate and manage financial toxicity, extrinsic to their providers kind of um, uh, helping them. So we know that key, key um, contributors to out-of-pocket costs are, first of all, prescription meds, and then all of the other things that cost money. And I think we have to think about the fact that all of the other things that cost money, it's not just the copay on the doctor, the visit to Dr. Raman. It's the gas to get to that visit. It's the parking costs. It's the fact that that patient and probably their whoever drove them didn't get to work that day. So they lost a day of, of income. They may have had to pay for a babysitter or somebody to, you know, grab uh, their child from daycare, which increased all of the out-of-pocket sort of expenditures. So, so the, the 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 net balance has to go has to be navigated in some way. So let's talk about prescriptions. We know that people will certainly change their lifestyle to save money to pay for prescriptions. They may spend less on basics, clothing and food. They may borrow money, use credit cards. Um, they may actually stay inpatient or request an added inpatient day stay because that in, in about 2% of patients have reported this where, because that gives them a couple extra days of medication. Um, we know that people may change how they use their meds. They may skip doses so that they can stretch their drugs out over longer. They may only take part of the prescription or take less than we prescribe. And they may also alter how they get their meds. So sometimes it's getting samples and that's actually a really nice way that as physicians, if we have samples, we can provide those that can help. Um, a lot of my patients will shop around at different pharmacies. So they'll make sure that they're, um, that they're, I've got, I've had a lot of patients who have looked to other countries to try to get drugs. We have patients who will, for example, there are some websites from Canada where patients can get um, lower drugs at lower cost, buy over-the-counter drugs instead of something that's a prescription if that's less expensive. Um, or I've had patients, who, of course, who have used other people's medications if they can get them. So there's, there's, there's lots and lots of different ways that people will sort of navigate and try to minimize prescription drug costs, which is obviously a key, key contributor to financial toxicity. In terms of changing how uh, their health care is provided in a way to make it more cost effective, commonly we see patients trying to group visits together so it's less time off work, maybe, and as I mentioned before, not getting studies that were recommended. So a CT scan or an MRI is extremely expensive. They might they might not get it. Um, and up to 10% of patients do report having missed a study because they just couldn't pay for it. Mm. Um, certainly people will doctor shop and make sure that a physician, for example, is in their program. Um, but then there's also the, uh, especially among cancer patients, up to four or 5% will just miss a chemo visit or miss a clinic visit because they couldn't pay for it. And then 
beyond sort of not being able to get the, pr pr the procedures or the treatments that we're recommending, they may also very strongly alter their lifestyle. And this actually is really important because if patients are doing things like not paying as much money for food, we're not being able to afford nutritious food. That's important for our patients. Um, they may change their jobs or ask members of their family to, to work longer hours, um, selling things that they own. Like I said, I, I had a patient who, it was, it was devastating. She and her husband had worked their entire life to buy this beautiful property. Um, and I remember specifically because they had a, they had a koi pond and, uh, and they had to sell it to pay for her treatments. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was something that had been kind of a retirement, like a, a, sort of one of those big goals for life. And and then um, her her diagnosis mandated that it was a question yeah. of uh, selling and downsizing um, or or not being able to pay the bills. And and I think these stories stick with you because we all work so hard to save for the things that we we have, and and financial stability is obviously so important. So obviously, you know when we talk about these key determinants of quality of life, patients are both changing how they're getting their treatment and specifically looking for more cost-effective ways to do that. But it's vastly changing all the other parts of life that are kind of the, the happy parts of life. And that's something that's important that we know about. So it's important to have that conversation and, and ask, you know, how, how is this affecting you? Um, and that's why being really aware of it, I think is especially important for, for providers. So, one of the things that we see more and more is um, systemic therapies are moving earlier and earlier into the treatment paradigm. Um, probably, you know, we, we've been seeing this for a number of years now with prostate uh, cancer, but certainly now we're seeing it with kidney cancer, uh, bladder cancer. And um, the, the good part is that obviously um, the studies clearly show that there's, you know, treatment survival benefit um, you know, I think the prostate literature is very rich with this and, and the, the combination therapies um, have a lot of therapeutic and treatment value. But obviously, we're moving these now earlier and earlier into the treatment paradigm. And presumably, if survival is better, people are now living longer and longer on these. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the scope of the, the issue that we have here with this movement earlier in the treatment realm. And, and what the implications of that are going to be for patients? Well, I think we're we're only starting to see that 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 uh, sort of the tip of the iceberg there. And as you said, across all of it, specifically in oncology, but across all of the um, the cancers that urologists treat, we're seeing this creep of these advanced systemic therapies into earlier phases. The ENACT trial is a, is a great example of this, which just looked at enzalutamide in the setting of active surveillance. And, and for men with prostate cancer that that perhaps didn't uh, warrant a treatment, I'm not going to jump into that trial because that's beyond the scope of this conversation. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to touch it on that. <laughs> uh, no, I think you're muted though. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, perfect. Sorry about that. I think... Uh, no, no, no worries. It must have just jumped out. So like I said, we are moving earlier and earlier into, um, we're moving all of these these drugs earlier into our treatment paradigm. I think a really good example of this is what's happened in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer with BCG unresponsive bladder cancer with pembrolizumab being introduced as a systemic therapy, a drug that 
you know, traditionally has been thought of it, obviously in our metastatic setting. Now we're seeing that we can't, we're using that in patients who have non-muscle invasive disease who have a very long projected survival ahead of them. And that drug obviously has a very high copay, especially depending on the, the drug plan that you, that patients might have. Um, we've talked a little bit about prostate, not only moving the advanced therapies into either the castration sensitive um, space, but earlier and earlier, for example, in just high-risk localized disease patients who are receiving radiation-based therapy, or and there's certainly clinical trials that are looking at um, uh, at bringing those therapies even, even earlier into sort of the high-risk localized space. And then like we, we just touched on with the active surveillance. And then in kidney and bladder as well, there have been novel approvals for not only um, adjuvant systemic therapies, both the IO therapies in, uh, in kidney and bladder. But then, of course, now, even for patients with metastatic disease, we use maintenance of Elimab after chemotherapy. So across the spectrum, we have fewer and fewer diseases where there are really treatment-free periods, right? We're thinking, and we're basically, our, we're, and we're, it's great that we're improving survival. But across all of these different diseases, not only are we bringing these very expensive therapies much more into the earlier settings where patients are expected to have not only months, but years and years of survival. But because of that, we're likely to also be having to go through multiple lines of therapy. So for example, the average number of lines of kidney cancer therapy at this point can be up to, you know, four to six lines of therapy. So we're talking about extending the length of time that patients are receiving these, these drugs that can be over $10,000 uh, a cycle. Um, and then, of course, we're talking about longer survival. The other thing that's, I think, a key contributor to financial toxicity in this setting is the fact that we're also centralizing care. So especially kind of across the country, we're seeing an increasing sort of uh, uh, push towards centralizing care, um, which means that patients are going to have to travel further to get to centers of excellence and get to places where physicians are, are potentially providing the services they need. That's increased travel time, increased cost of travel, increased time away from work for both them and their care providers. So in all of those, and then potentially increased visits and things like that. So we're, we are directly kind of increasing the potential for higher out-of-pocket costs. Um, and if we're not aware of that and not asking patients how all of those those sort of you know about their ability to receive those those treatments, again we're we're potentially um, minimizing both the feasibility of successful treatment, but then also and patients' ability to receive it. Um, I think we we probably haven't talked too too much about caregiver burden um, when it comes to financial toxicity, but that's a key contributor to. Uh, patients' overall quality of life and, and their, their uh, out-of-pocket costs is not only the amount of money that it costs that patient to receive their care, but all of the indirect costs that are associated with the caregiver um, taking time away from work. And again, for example, finding childcare or uh, sort of navigating all of the other costs of, of life when one, not only one member of a family is not able to provide, but a second member is being pulled out of work and potentially being going, uh, requesting sort of extended medical medical leave to care for another provider or another member of the family. Um, and I think the one other thing that, that we haven't necessarily touched on, but and this is really a bit of a black box, 
but we are increasingly moving into an era of personalized therapy based on genetic testing. Um, and as we we grow our ability to provide personalized medicine and we expand genetic testing to identify key actionable um, uh uh, mutations or that, that just may sort of allow a patient to receive a specific drug. There's also questions there about insurability, um, and that may may actually impact not only a, provide a patient's ability to receive insurance for themselves, but potentially for their family members going forward. So you're talking not only about their own financial toxicity, but then say the, the, the fact that they can't get insurance for their kids. So a lot of different things, I think, are good. a lot of these different factors are playing into the fact that we're we're probably further increasing the cost of care, and in doing so, we're going to increase the magnitude of the financial toxicity that a lot of our patients experience. So then we, we sort of get to you know the you know it's always nice to finish with okay what can we do right so I feel like what you've done really nicely is you've laid the framework that it is a current problem. It is probably going to become an even more significant problem, whether it be for the patient, for their caregivers, um, and and I think that what most of us probably don't know nearly as much about is okay, what can we do? What are things that we can do that can actually have some sort of actionable measure, and and what is reasonable for us? And you know, you, you, I feel like one of the things that would be helpful to know is. You always think about yourself as an individual practitioner and the monolith of, you know, a healthcare organization and then the larger healthcare system outside of your organization. Um, and so you hate to say it, but are you like one of the pawns in this entire equation? But what can we do to, to get this problem better, to improve upon it? What can we do for our patients to help mitigate some of this financial toxicity? Well, I think about this um, from a couple of different perspectives. So I will say that as a provider, the first and most important thing we can do is talk to our patients about the fact that financial toxicity is a thing. <laughs> it is an entity that they that we are aware of and that we care about. And so, like I said, I try to start that conversation in those first visits when I'm giving someone a diagnosis and sort of laying out a, sort of a plan of care. And in my social history, I ask about whether or not patients are insured or not. And I, you can see it, but I, I sort of already, I try to get some sense for what their degree of financial stability is. And, not, and obviously these are, you, these are sensitive questions and they're often questions that we're all uncomfortable talking about. And as a, as a healthcare provider, I don't feel that I have, I, I personally don't have any you know, sort of ex, specific expertise in financial planning or, or economics, but it's, it's something I've tried to learn about in order to help patients um, make plans. But I think mostly the way that I try to start the conversation is to let them know that I'm aware that this is a costly thing and I want them to be comfortable telling me I can't afford that doc because then that means, okay, then I need to come up with a better plan that's going to work. And, and that's how I kind of present it. I say, you know, I need to know what what's going to be important to you. And I, I want to know what you can do and can't do because I don't want to recommend something that is just a no-go. Then, then I'm not doing my job. I'm not being helpful to you at all. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, you know, my game, my game plan here, my end goal is that my patients have the best quality of life they can while they're on treatment. And we talk about the fact that survivorship starts at diagnosis. 
and this is a key contributor to survivorship quality of life. So that's how kind of the, the framework that I, I use to introduce the conversation. And I do check in with patients and I say, how are things going? And, and I, I'm not that we're asking about specific finances, but is this a stressor for you or not? Is there something that we should be thinking about separately? If one drug that we really want to provide is too expensive. So for example, lots of our patients on chemotherapy get blood clots. DVTs and PEs are very common. Nobody likes giving themselves shots. Nobody likes get, taking warfarin and having to measure their INR all the time. Something like a Pixaban is a really great, these, the, the direct oral therapies are, are fantastic in terms of quality of life for patients. They are horrendously expensive. But there is a drug program through the company that as long as you go to the website and fill out the quick form, which only takes about 10 minutes, you can get Eliquis the rest of your life or a Pixaban the rest of your, a patient can get that for the rest of their life for, I think it's something like 10 to $20 a month. And if you don't know about this website, which I only know about because I talked to a pharmacist and they told me about it, mm. and then then the patients wouldn't have no idea and they'd have to pay whatever the copay is. And I think the copay for that per month on average is somewhere between eighty to one hundred and sixty dollars, which is a lot of money. Mm. So you're saving somebody that much money just by being aware of it. So again, I think having that conversation and letting patients know it's okay for them to bring that to you as as a key complaint is is critical. So. Then we do talk about insurance. I say, you know, what is your insurance strata, status? Do you, do you, this, I say this may be a situation if the patients don't have insurance, I help to direct them to a financial advisor at the hospital or one of the financial navigators who can be very helpful at, in terms of looking for insurance options. Um, there's a couple of, uh, I've, I've tried to learn, there's some really wonderful um, patient facing resources that I've, I've tried to sort of uh, sort of walk through myself because I think they can be helpful to direct patients to. There's there's a company and it's called um, triagecancer.org. There's a great website mm. that has a number of little like YouTube videos that are just wonderful for patients to look at. There's there's a whole segment on sort of unpacking health insurance and understanding those EOBs, those, those, all of the mailings you get before you actually have to pay a medical bill that tell you what your bill is going to be. Um, I didn't even understand what those were. <laughs> I went to the website and learned about them. And so it's really important, for example, that you tell patients don't pay your bills until you've seen the EOB because that's what you're actually responsible for. And sometimes the EOBs, for example, will get sent out um, after patients receive their bills and they won't necessarily match. Um, and it's really hard for patients to recoup money that they've paid already. So I tell patients, you know, pay your bills after you've gotten the EOB and make sure that what's on the EOB matches your bill. And it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, a lot of kind of paperwork and it can be kind of confusing, but it can save patients a lot of money. Um, in terms of lowering bills before care, this is where talking to patients is really important. So um, I think this is a key at the very beginning of treatment we can engage hospital social workers. We can engage navigators. A lot of cancer centers will have programs that are set up to help patients, um, whether it's you know lower cost housing options during chemotherapy treatments or places where families can stay while, while a patient is recovering from surgery. Um, I think it's really important that we think about generic drugs and using them as much as we can when we can um, in an effort to just think about the costs of these different drugs and, and when it's possible to use a lower cost drug 
I definitely try to. Or if you know that the insurance company is not going to pay for, let's say, somebody who's getting BCG and has bad bladder spasms and you really want to give them Mirbetric, you may have to go through one of the other anticholinergics first, but you just tell patients to let you know when, if, they, if and when they have any toxicity so that you can then talk to the insurance company and say, hey, listen, they didn't tolerate that. We need this more expensive drug. And then usually that will allow them to get coverage. Um, I think that being really respectful of patients' time is something that as providers we can do. We sort of always, I think, as you as you alluded to so critically, we don't have a lot of time with these people, these patients. We have these 15-minute visits where we've got to go through symptoms, um, any potential you know, responses to therapy or not, go through all of the, the results of the labs and the imaging and then talk about next steps, maybe do a cystoscopy in there. Um, there's not a lot of time. But I do think that doing things like having a patient get an imaging study on the same day that they come in for, say, their bladder cancer cystoscopy, or, it may make things a little bit, sometimes it makes it a little bit more challenging for the physician, but it meant that patient who in our case, a lot of my patients, for example, will drive like six hours to see me from Eastern Washington. If that meant one drive over the pass, we've saved them multiple days of work. Mm -hmm. We've had one drive back and forth, one set of gas bills. That saves that saves money. Um, and then I am a huge fan of telehealth in this day and age. Um, then the fact that it allows a lot of patients to, for example, take a healthcare visit, say just like a, a kidney cancer surveillance visit where you really just need to go over imaging and labs and talk about how patients are feeling. And the physical exam, especially if they're a year or two out of their surgery, may or may not be as important. Now, obviously, if a patient's having symptoms, that's different. They need to be there in person and get a proper exam. But if it's just a question of sort of a 10-minute, 15-minute in and out, your CT scan looks great, your labs look perfect, your kidney function is good, I'll see you again in a year that patient didn't need to drive, you know, three hours back and forth. Mm -hmm. And we can do that over telehealth and they can even do that in a quiet space at work where they can continue and sort of keep having their day. Saves a ton of money. Um, so that I think is a kind of a key strategy. Um, and then there are other sort of uh, opportunities that we can sort of point patients towards that take a little bit more time take a little bit more effort, but sometimes can be really, really helpful. So in addition to, uh, to financial assistance strategies that your hospital may be able to point them towards your cancer center, um, there are financial assistance programs for patients out there, whether they're through different foundations. Um, American Cancer Society is a, great is a great example, but there are local, state, and county options. There are private programs. And then uh, obviously within each cancer center, for example, in the, in the oncology space, there are often a lot of resources for patients that sort of the patients may have to fill out a, a fair amount of paperwork for, but the social workers or the patient care navigators, the nurse navigators may often be able to help with. And I think just letting patients know that these exist can be really, really helpful. So lots of different strategies. I think that um, there, there are some really novel um, strategies. There, there are uh, some providers have have started talking about financial toxicity tumor boards, which are basically tumor boards that are that are, have this as a key, uh, a key sort of uh, focus, uh, how to provide low cost, low out of pocket cost care. Um, and then there's there's also other uh, things that patients are patients themselves are being very creative about uh, seeking out opportunities. So whether it's crowdfunding, um, I think we've all seen uh, uh, both 
friends and colleagues and patients who have have gone to social media to try to raise funds to pay for medical bills. Um, and I think that that's actually, that can be very successful in certain circumstances. Obviously, if we have generous friends and colleagues, that's a great option. Patients do need to know that there, there are some potential risks to crowdfunding, both from a privacy standpoint, mm -hmm. um, but also because it may actually impact their eligibility for other public funded, publicly funded um, programs. So I just think it's important to talk to patients. If they're going to use that as a strategy, it's important to be um, to have a conversation about what that may do in terms of impacting their care. But all in overall, I would say that there, there are a lot of things that as providers we can do, even just going to bat for patients and making sure that you do the peer-to-peers and the prior auths. Um, but I think, I think having this be a part of our conversation is critical. And then I guess the one other thing I would say, Jay, that I think is really important is I think we need to think about this as a key quality of life measure in our research as providers. And that's something that has not been as, um, it's not been a key focus until I would say recently with the increasing awareness of, of how uh, financial toxicity impacts quality of life. But there are validated instruments that can measure financial toxicity. The, the one that most people use is called the COST, C-O-S-T instrument. And I think that being um, including that when we're looking at quality of life in patients, especially patients who are on clinical trials or uh, who are in, in, part, in prospective um, observational cohorts is actually important for us to understand the, the, the contemporary magnitude of the problem because a lot of the, the data I quoted you earlier is actually from about 10 years ago. Um, and understanding the contemporary impact of all of our treatments on patients' financial quality of life I think is very important. Long-winded answer. Lots of things. No, we no. Well, I mean, I, I think you hit on so many of the the important um, important points and, and important elements. It's it's interesting. We we all hate doing you know peer to peers, right? I mean, you'll you'll see people all complaining about how much peer to peer, but but you know the, the ultimately when you think about it, it's it's really peer to peer. But what it does is it provides potentially the best care for the patient. Yeah. and the most appropriate care and and the appeals for example whether it's benign or malignant urology um, potentially offer options that are more cost effective and and i completely agree with your point about telehealth i mean most of my practice is prostate cancer well let me tell you after the first year um, there's not much of a physical exam to be perfectly honest unless someone's symptomatic it's a psa blood test and a discussion about some of the quality of life outcomes. And, and I don't have people coming from six hours away, but, but Hershey's catchment area is about two and a half, three hours. And I say to myself, does someone really need to miss half to three quarters day of work, the gas cost, simply to see me for 15 minutes in the office to talk about a blood test that I could have perhaps given them the results over. And, and I, I certainly think that part of our new reality, and I really hope that as we evolve over time, some of the, the government, um, government challenges with broadband and widespread broadband and making telehealth more 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 available becomes you know central to how we provide care and and i think the last thing that you mentioned that i think is just great is ask ask and ask right i yeah. I, I feel like you, you do a great job in your first visit um engaging persons i i would hazard a guess that there are some persons that it may not they may not open up to you until maybe the second the third or the fourth when you've started to have a rapport. And I feel like if you don't revisit that question 
um, you may never get to the, the root of the, of the issue perhaps. Yeah. It's, it's a, <laughs> I go back to when I was a first year medical student and what we called it at uh, Harvard Med, it was called patient doctor one. <laughs> it's like taking a social history, but I guess my, one, one thing I try to engage patients on in, or at least I try to make very clear in that first visit is that all of this matters. All of the stuff outside of just the diagnosis matters to me. And it's okay to talk to me about any of that stuff because that's actually going to allow me to provide better care. If I don't know that a patient is struggling to pay their healthcare bills and therefore they're not taking the prescriptions that I've asked them to take, then again, and and it's because they don't feel like that's something they need to tell me or that, that is even something that I need to know about. If I don't sort of open that conversation and just say, hey, this is all fair game. This is all stuff that I care about. Um, then it's not going to be something that comes up later down the line when we're talking about chemotherapy. I, I think, you know, and I, I think it's important as a provider, you know, patients ask often, you know, what's this surgery going to cost? And the answer is, I don't know most of the mm-hmm. time. We have a lot of lack of transparency in how charges are assessed and, and put out there. We have, there's, there's an issue in terms of the fact that depending on the insurance program, it's going to be different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the the biggest uh, sort of shocks I ever, I ever had just in, in caring for patients was when one patient brought me his Lupron bill when I was in Chicago at Cook County Hospital and his Lupron bill was $19,000. Mm-hmm. That was what the charge was. And Lupron is incredibly expensive. And I had absolutely no idea that this, you know, this was what my patients were seeing these bills. Now, thankfully they were being covered, but mm-hmm. they're seeing this cost. And so it's, and especially for a patient who's being treated in a hospital where, where you know, it's a, the majority of patients are underinsured and, and um, have, have a lot of concerns around finances and financial stability. I, I realized I needed to learn a whole lot more about this in order to make sure that my patients were actually getting the drugs that they needed. Um, so I think having conversations about it as researchers, we need to be aware of it. Um, and we need to actually be measuring cost, cost out-of-pocket costs using these validated instruments. Um, and there's been some really nice work done in bladder cancer on that recently. Um, so Meet Bombadi and I wrote a systematic review that we published in European um, Urology a couple of years now ago where we, we kind of went through um, what what is out there. But the truth of the matter is there's not that much out there about this because we mm-hmm. haven't been studying it as rigorously as we study all the other um, factors that impact quality of life. And it's something that we need to do a good job of measuring. Um, so again, I think, you know, thanks to the AUA for having a podcast on this because that's how we're going to get the message out. And then, um, and then I, I also have found it really helpful to talk to patient advocacy organizations about financial toxicity because I learn a lot from them about what they're recommending their patients do. So the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, the, the um, KCA um, mm-hmm. Cancer Advocacy Network, all these, these organizations do a beautiful job of providing really great resources for their patients that I'm not necessarily always aware of. So it's helpful for me to go to those websites and then I can say, hey, you know, here's a great set of resources that you can consider. Great. Well, Sarah, I really want to um, thank you so much for really thoughtful, uh, thoughtful discussion. Uh, obviously, for your time, uh, expertise, it's really been our pleasure to be able to host you uh, today. And I appreciate you taking some time out of your time off from work 
uh, to, to, to sort of join us here. Well, thank you so much. And uh, um, it's been it's been fun to chat. Um, for our audience, uh, again, thanks for joining us. And for any other additional information, uh, please visit us at auanet.org uh, slash university. Uh, Sarah, take care. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks very much, Jay. Bye-bye. Bye.